in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. This is Ancient Rome Refocused with your host, Rob Kane. History for the Brave. Welcome back to the show. You are now listening to episode 14, season 3 of Ancient Rome Refocus. I have on the show Larissa Julianis and Craig Engel from Theater on the Hill from Bolingbrook, Illinois, to tell us about the musical Zenobia, an original production, by the way. I have to admit it, I enjoy musical theater. I grew up in Oak Park, Illinois, where there was a strong theater crowd and appeared in a few productions myself, even dancing a hornpipe in a production of Carousel. But take my strong interest in the classical world and combine it with the stage, and I am hooked. I came across an internet advertisement for a musical on the third century queen, Zenobia. I have to admit, I could not look away. As you know, Almost every episode of Ancient Rome Refocus start with a dramatic narration. The following is in honor of Larissa Julianis, the musical Zenobia, and the people at Theater on the Hill. This podcast is titled, It's Good to be Queen. Senator Maximus took a sip of wine from his clay cup. His family sat around the table, each with a drink and a bowl of olives. You were there, said Gaius Folger, his brother. Tell us what she looked like. The queen, you mean? Yes, you were in Rome, we were not. Was she naked? He said with a slight glint in his eye. Tell us what you saw, tell us every detail. I want to know, said Volger's boy, with his eyes round as saucers. The senator's sister, Cynthia, sat at the table as well. She smiled kindly at him. Oh, Max, was the triumph so awful? Bulger the elder laughed. He slapped his brother on the shoulder. Why should the great Senator Maximus be sad? He was fortunate to be in Rome when they walked that bitch in triumph. A triumph is a good thing. A triumph is a celebration of the might of Rome. Soldiers eat and drink most of the afternoon, and at night they whore. There are parties all over the city. If you're lucky, there are bags of gold to be had and tables of food laid out with open seats for anyone to sit. Even the baths are free. The stink of soldier sweat can be skimmed off the surface of the water for weeks. A triumph is one long, magnificent party. Folger's boy leaned forward in a seat. Tell us about Zenobia, Senator Maximus. Please tell us. What did you see? The boy begged, hearing his father go on and on. Max smiled and poured some water in the boy's wine. He tussled his hair and pinched his cheek. He loved his nephew. Well, there were three royal chariots displayed to the crowd. One was a gift from the Persians. One was the chariot of Otaneus, the chariot of her dead husband. And a third, and the third belonged to Zenobia herself. Gold, silver, and bronze. A beautiful piece of work. Elephants, drafts, and tigers were paraded through the streets. 
and eight hundred gladiators marched in front of the captives. Goths, Alans, Roxolani, Samaritans, Franks, Subai, Vandals, and Germans, all in chains and all cowering in front of the Roman mob. Max leaned close to his nephew. You know, I heard her coming before she even turned the corner, little one. The crowd took up her name. Zenobia, Zenobia, Zenobia. She was led down the street by a dwarf, dressed in a Roman centurion uniform. He pulled on a long golden chain. The chain ran down the street and turned the corner towards the direction from which she was coming. The golden chain was thirty feet long, so no one where I was standing could see her yet. It was only when she turned the corner that the crowd that stood on the steps of Jupiter's Capilina Temple could see her. Like doves flapping their wings, their hands clapped and applauded her entrance into the view. Folger's boy, the younger, was entranced by the story. What did she look like? Tell me, tell me. Senator Max smiled. He liked the boy. Something preceded her. Something followed her. It was like a mist, and not a mist. Oh, let's think. Can honor follow a woman? Can it precede her? Maybe what I smelled was only her perfume. A scent of roses mixed with honor. Oh, enough philosophizing. She walked in heavy steps, leaving her blood on the stones. It was as if she wanted to bleed and leave her mark. Others with cut feet seemed to walk gingerly, taking care from the pain. But she stepped with precision. Her back was straight, ramrod straight, and she walked with a defiant strut down the road. Folger the Elder did not like that at all. Defiant was she, defiant. The bitch. My oldest boy died in the taking of the Citadel. There was an uncomfortable silence around the table. Senator Max continued. Her dress was torn. There was blood down her legs and on the inner thighs. Raped, I take it? Folger asked. I don't know, Max answered. I don't want to know. It's a long way from Palmyra. The dwarf was having a hard time with her chains. Many of the people were let through by the guards, and they helped the tiny centurion pull her forward. When she came into view, it was obvious what had happened. Her forehead was streaked with brown excrement. Her arms and legs were covered with it. The crowd laughed, and men revealed their cocks from underneath their tunics and stroked them, as if offering themselves up for attention. Gaius Folger, the younger, took a deep gulp of wine. His father noticed. He smiled and patted the boy on the back. Senator Max continued to describe the scene. She ignored the insults. She was not permitted to go forward. Part of her punishment 
was to see the spoils of her city pass her by. She saw the fortunes of her city move past her and go down the road, out of her grasp. Wagons rolled up behind her and around her, filled with gold, silver, statues of gods, and naked boys and girls chained in back of carts, calling out her name in recognition. Each boy and girl had a sign for sale. What of her? Vulture, the elder asked, his face in a frown. How heavy were her chains? Max nodded. They were heavy enough to make her wrists bleed. Vulture, the elder, nodded. He poured another cup. He seemed satisfied. Senator Max continued his story. Finally, after the crowd heaped enough abuse on her, and she was dragged forward to another part of the Appian to be showed off, abused, and allowed the mob to vent. I don't know if they allowed her to sleep before the triumph. I'm sure they starved her so that she would look miserable and properly cowed. And was she? asked Bulger, the elder. Max cleared his throat. No, she was not. Starved, maybe. Abused, certainly. You asked me, young Bulger, what did she look like? I have a description for you. She was dark. Darker than normal women when they labor in the sun. Her limbs told me she knew how to ride a horse. She was stronger than normal women. Her arms obviously could carry a sword. She had long black hair, not curled, not set like a fancy Roman woman. It fell down her back, straight. And she covered her head. Folger the Elder grunted his disgust. Her captors allowed her time to primp before the triumph? Max shook his head. She was a queen after all, brother. A queen. Think about it. Tell us more about her, Folger the Younger demanded. Let me think, Max said. High cheekbones. A nose that deserves respect. Eyes that had taken in all the worries of the world. She had red lips and perfect teeth, and she breathed deep on life itself. And I'd like to point out, brother, no tears. She did not cry. Cynthia's sister looked at him with surprise. No tears? Is she made of stone? No, sister. She is a woman like you, she may be of sterner stuff, but a woman just the same. The slave Felix entered. Where do you want me to put your purchase? The old man asked. His brother looked surprised and delighted. You, 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 you brought some things back from Rome? Gold, wine, cloth? Tell us, any gifts? Senator Max shook his head. Just one purchase, he turned to the slave. Put the item in my room. Now everyone was intrigued. They pressed him for what he had purchased in Rome. Everyone loves a gift, especially if it is bought in Rome. They begged him to see it. After all, an item bought while in Rome must be magnificent. He surrendered to their entreaties and waved his hand at old Felix to bring the item from where it was standing to where his family sat 
in the atrium. Everyone waited excitedly, expecting the item to be placed on the table so it could be admired. Instead of returning with a package or a box, Felix came back into the room, leading a woman by the hand. Senator Max stood up. He walked over to the woman, and he stood by her and said, Family, I want you to meet my intended. She shall be my new wife. Folger the Younger stood up and ran over to her and gave her a long hug about the hips. A look of surprise went across his face. He slowly walked back to the table and said in a quiet voice, She smells. Maximus laughed. You would too if you walked across a desert. The boy turned around and made other observations. She has long black hair. Maximus nodded. So would you if you came from the same country. Cynthia stood up and inspected the woman's wrists. This woman has been shackled. Her wrists are raw. She is bloodied and starved. Who is she, Max? Senator Maximus looked at Cynthia with a smile on his face. Can you not guess... Folger the Elder knew who she was, and he stood up in shock. You fool! You could not have! You fool! How could you? The family! How could you? Senator Maximus turned around and called for Felix. Draw a bath for her. Anoint her. Find the best garment you can find. Folger the Elder stepped forward. For a slave? Cynthia interrupted. She was a queen, Folger. Max smiled. She's greater than that. She is my wife. I want to thank the people at freesound.org for the sound effects for this dramatic narration. If you're looking for sound effects, you've got to go there. they got everything you need. If you're wondering why I gave the ending such a unusual conclusion in regards to Senator Max marrying Queen Zenobia, it has to do with a legend that she lived out her life married to a Roman senator. This is by far the more romantic ending to the third century queen than her being strangled at the end of the triumph. To tell a tale, you must gather an audience. The people of Bolingbroke are a sophisticated lot. They don't settle for another version of The Sound of Music or The Odd Couple. Tonight, it's an original composition. The musical Zenobia is poetry, prose, song, and dance to tell a story of a warrior queen of ages past. A musical is a perfect medium for this. Let's stop for a moment. A timeout. Let's talk about the context of the times. We have to understand what it's like to live in that world. We're not talking about the old Roman Empire, but a Roman Empire on the wane. 
Roman influence once was as wide as the reach of Hadrian's Wall, down to the tip of Spain, across the sweep of Europe, as far and wide as Armenia, down the tip of the boot, across Greece, up and down the coast, encompassing Egypt, Palestine, and the coast of Turkey itself. Now let's look at a map of 260. It's a different world. The empire has been divided into three parts. The Gaelic Empire is to the west, and the Pimerian Empire is to the east. Rome is centered, trapped, between two hungry nations. This is not the Pax Romana. This is the age of generals fighting for dominance. This is the age of intrusion of tribes into empire. Aurelian comes to power, a rough and ready soldier with backbone, who defeats the Vandals, the Visigoths, and is determined to reclaim what he thinks belongs to him by right. Think of the third century this way. Here in the U.S., you can buy California oranges and apples from Michigan. You can even buy Israeli fruits and Chinese goods. Now imagine that you could only buy fruit and goods, clothes and the essentials, from the next town. The world has become considerably smaller. No wonder Aurelian wanted his Palmyra back. The city was a trading center between the Roman Empire and the Parthians. Trade made it rich, a center for caravans, a place to store spice and goods between two great civilizations. This seems familiar to me. Another city sat between two great parts of the world. The city was called Troy. And like Palmyra, it collected tolls and taxes and grew rich on trade. These type of cities are subjects of tragedies. These type of cities tend to disappear because their riches are envied. These type of cities can be subjects for plays, novels, documentaries and musicals in Bolingbroke. To start a tale, you need an audience. They gather at the entrance. It is a sound familiar, familiar to anyone who's gone to a play. Hundreds of voices all gossiping out loud, nervous chatter before the story begins. This sound is timeless, almost universal, for the play has been starting like this for a thousand years a nervous chatter that goes back to the beginning of drama itself. In this medium you have song and dance, love, heartbreak, conflict, especially conflict. The Greeks taught us that it is the basis of all drama. It goes back to Sophocles, Euripides, and Aeschylus. They all used it for effect. Three dramatic genres emerged from the ancient world, tragedy, comedy, and a form of burlesque. This musical seems like a musical tragedy. A tragedy with song intertwined with dance. It has all the elements to entertain. Song, dance, and spectacle. And in musical theater, you give them what they want. A sibyl opens the musical, telling of Palmyra. It's like saying, once upon a time, or beginning a tale with old muse. Begin a musical with the right notes, the right tone. It is telling a story that is engineered into our psyche, almost hardwired. The music is saying to us, without the words, without the once upon a time, that the play begins. This is how epics, 
poetry and adventure stories were, were once started. Now they start with the right notes with just the right prick to make you think that something is about to be told. A beautiful woman comes on stage wearing wings. The first Greek writer to mention a sibyl is Heraclitus in the 5th century BC. Quote, the sibyl with frenzied mouth uttered things not to be laughed at, unadorned and unperfumed, yet reaches with a voice to a thousand years with the aid of a god. But this sibyl has no frenzied mouth. She is played by Emily Seymour and is angelic. Larissa Julianis, actress, playwright. Uh, Zenobia was a queen of Syria who lived in the 3rd century, was born around 240, approximately. The, what we've pieced together about her life is mostly from Roman authors, various authors. We have a lot of concrete facts, a lot of guesswork, but uh, historically, the story goes that when she was a teenager, she was married to the governor of Palmyra, the king Odonathus. Um, he died. He was murdered. She ended up taking control of the government in the name of her son by him, proclaimed him emperor, which was a big no-no, ended up invading Asia Minor, took over Egypt, killed the Roman prefect down there, by this point, the Roman Emperor Aurelian said, you know what, I better start thinking about the East instead of concentrating so much in Gaul. Ended up defeating her, raised Palmyra, her beautiful city, the capital of Syria at that time, um, or I should say a very prominent trading post and uh, caravan city. She was taken back to Rome, paraded through the streets in golden chains, and after that, the historical record is very uncertain about what happened to her. 
But I think choosing Zenobia is a very unusual move. I mean, I know there are operas, uh, one written by uh, Rossini, and there are a few plays in Western culture, but it seems like there's a concentration on Cleopatra all the time. And Pr- oh, yeah. And Princeton and the new Vic in London approached Zenobia as a subject. And I do know that Syrian TV did a very uh, popular television show based on her life, and that kind of makes sense. But what attracted you to the subject? Footnote. The music is beautiful, and Julianus's voice carries the show with a magical quality. She is stunning in the role, and she fits the part. There is no question that this actress thinks behind the facade of her character, and you would lose if you tried to win a bet against her on a classical question meant for the TV show Jeopardy. Alex, classy women of antiquity for $200, Well, go back away from me, Rob. I was a very peculiar child. Um, Yeah, my husband's laughing now. Ever since, I don't know, age six, I've been obsessed with the ancient world. I watched Ten Commandments until the tape wore out. Do you remember those relics of ancient antiquity, the VHS tapes? Oh, yes, I do. Uh, You know, some... Some crazy people think they were Elvis in a previous incarnation, and I, I must think I was Bethel B. DeMille or something. Uh, Zenobia, as the subject of a musical, a film, television, anything, is just perfect. I fell in love with her in 1999, and I wanted to write a musical ever since. I mean, who doesn't love a warrior queen? And an obscure one, like Zenobia, that most of most Americans have never even heard of. She's even better because no one knows how it ends. So, And how often do you get the, that chance with historical figures? Seriously. I mean, even those who do know can't know for sure. As like I said, the historical record has so many different, different accounts. I prefer the ending that's not depressing. That works really well, well for musicals. Footnote. There are various accounts of what happened to Zenobia. Some say she was beheaded, some say she was strangled, some say she died of illness, some say she married a Roman senator and lived out her life in happiness. Whatever the history says, when you write a musical, pick the happy ending. Well, historical Zenobia, I think she can teach us, be happy with Syria, don't proclaim your kid emperor and invade Egypt, you'll land in the history books, but it never ends well. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll remember that. Uh, and in 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 reading about Zenobia, was there anything you focused on that stood out when you were writing the script? Well, what yeah, what stood out from the historical account? I think for me, the theme of behind every gray woman is an army of men, you know, figuratively and literally, antagonists and protagonists, helping her and hindering her. King Odenapus, who I renamed Danathus, took off the O. He's the second largest character in the musical. Uh, maybe life did end well for Zenobia after everything she went through. You know, you can't say that for most warrior women in ancient times. That's what makes her different than Boadicea or even Cleopatra. Well, how did you go from an idea to a full stage production? Uh, what are the steps? And you got the you got the director in the room. What kind of musical is it? I say it's uh it would be on a par of what uh, disney or dreamworks would put out uh with classic music uh kind of poppy classic sound
That was Larissa Julianis and Scott Bovaird. The music is haunting, and I asked Larissa to tell me about the composer. Angela Salvajon. Angela Salvajon uh, I met in the fall of 2010 when she volunteered to play piano accompaniment for a Theater on the Hill fundraiser. And then she played some of Mozart's very difficult, magnificent compositions for our fall production of Amadeus. She was the live pianist throughout the show. And it was clear to me what an amazing musical talent she is. And I was thrilled when I approached her and she agreed to partner with me on Zenobia. Zenobia had been the project I kept coming back to as the, the one thing I really wanted to work on, I really wanted to complete. But there was no way I could do it because I can't compose. I can do a lot of other things, but I can't compose. Uh, by November of 2010, we had our first song together, the simple song which opens the show. She's been teaching music for 30 years. She started teaching when she was 13. She graduated from DePaul University with a musical education degree. She lives in Joliet. She teaches piano, bassoon, flute, clarinet, saxophone, more than that even. Um, she plays for several area theater groups besides Theater on the Hill. She plays for a lot of area churches, composes music for them, and she's a published composer and arranger. Uh, one fun fact about Angela is that she's a member of the Mensa Society. I can't leave out um, music director Michael Fudala, who's a musical genius as well, and he helped arrange some of the music and recorded all of it for our production. It was a huge undertaking. Craig Engel, director. The way the the way this play really came about in Enslin is that, um, and Larissa being in the performing arts, she just decided, you know what, I've had this passion for the story for a long time. I'm kind of beholden to powers that be that are out of my control in this business. I'm going to take control of my career and of my life and my destiny. I'm going to write this musical. I'm going to do my best to change my life with this. So... Larissa has an amazing brain. She graduated from college when she was 17. I mean, she's a genius. During the two and a half years that she was writing this thing, she would come to me and say, you know, I've got this idea and I'm doing this and I'm doing this. And I, and I told her, I said, just keep writing. Let me see it when it's done. Let me see when, when it's done. She brought it to me when it was finished, and it was, it was brilliant. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, she has a degree in film writing, and, 
and uh, from Columbia College, and uh, she really brought uh, a vision of what an entertainment could be, uh, coupled with historical aspect. But she also, after after discussing the plot with her and, and refining it, we decided that it needed a more decidedly modern edge to it. And what we did is we put into the script the whole 99%. We are the 99% into the script. There's allusions to the differences uh, in, in, in power structure and class that are in this play. I, I, did you watch the DVD, by the way? Yes, I did. Yeah, so you're aware of that. And uh, when she added that kind of angle to the script, it really made it come to life and gave it uh, a, a, a different kind of focus that made it more topical and more entertaining. I, I just, I, I just was was stunned at at the um, the comprehensive focus that she put into the script, making it entertaining and topical, and incorporating incorporating historical aspect, and then also incorporating her other uh, interests in in terms of spirituality and love and forgiveness and all kinds of different things. And I thought she did it brilliantly. Then she worked with a composer, and they worked very closely together for a pretty substantial amount of time, and came up with this music that only Larissa and this composer were familiar with. I think a lot of people who were affiliated with the group and who were affiliated with the initial staging of this had kind of like the attitude, like, yeah, prove it, show me. You know, you're writing a brand-new musical. And a lot of people kind of thought, you know, it's going to be some kind of you know, musical review or, or, or some kind of less ambitious thing. And once it all came to fruition, people's just, jaws just dropped. All of her um, all of her intellectual interests and her spiritual interests into a really entertaining piece. I lean heavily on the Roman histories, which is where we get most of our knowledge about Zenobia. But she's not Abraham Lincoln, and so a lot about her is unknown, and it's perfect for taking musical liberties with. Of course, I took even more than that. <laughs> it's musical theater. It's not a documentary. While most of the main characters are historical and the major events of her life are still there, there are also mythological characters, like three fates and a symbol. There's ghosts. There's a near-death experience. And you know that whole singing and dancing thing? That I'm not picturing the historical Zenobia and Roman Emperor really doing much of. But they can on stage. Yeah, it's a musical. <laughs> It's supposed to be entertaining, after all. <laughs> well, you know, I could hear a couple of Roman playwrights, you know, probably yelling the same thing from the grave. It's supposed to be entertaining, after all. And, and they're right. And they're right, you know. I, I think they probably face some of the same issues. I mean, uh, they they were quite closer to the action, but they were still separated from it. So they had to consider who their audiences were. So I don't see much difference between what you accomplished and to what they had to work on. They're creating a, a, a story for people to be entertained. Footnote, Joseph Campbell, an American mythologist, writer, and lecturer, wrote the book The Hero of a Thousand Faces. George Lucas credits him in the shaping of the movie trilogy Star Wars. Well, it makes sense the hero going on a journey where he will be tested. Campbell's personal philosophy is follow your bliss, 
which is exactly what Larissa Julianis has accomplished by the writing and the production of this musical, a good philosophy for anyone. I have to ask you something. You know, Joseph Campbell, who wrote the book about the hero, uh, he talks about a hero venturing forth from the world of the common day into the region of supernatural wonder. He talks about fabulous forces encountered and a decisive victory is won. And then the hero coming back from a mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. How does Zenobia venture forth, and is she the hero? I love that you're talking about Joseph Campbell because three-act classic storytelling is is what I always come back to and I completely love as a writer and a screenwriter. Zenobia, in my story, she ventures out by risking her own life to save the man she loves and thereby catching the eye of the king and the heart of a nation in the process. And that's what catapults her on her journey that sometimes she has control of and sometimes she doesn't but uh, brings her out on the other side a different person and an evolved person. Was there a victory for her? I think so, but definitely in a more esoteric sense. Zenobia in the musical achieves victory over her own pain and finds it within her to forgive and to find love throughout her journey of life. Did Zenobia teach you anything about your own life? Well, yes. Well, Zenobia taught me that with a big enough dream and enough determination, crazy, amazing things are possible. Even epic musicals out here in the middle of the Chicago suburbs. Things that no one else is willing to tackle because they just seem so epic and so out of their elements. Uh, But none of those things are possible if it comes true without an army of devoted people with you working just as hard for that same dream just like Zenobia, would have been nothing without all her people. Um, The dream for me started to become reality when I partnered with Angela. Never would have happened without her. And then that team grew to about 70 people by the time the production was mounted, each of them vitally important to its success. Um, Throughout these years with Zenobia, I've also grown a heart for the suffering of the Syrian people they've been going through for several years now. And I hope that this musical can humanize Zenobia's people to Americans and to other Westerners. I know we in the cast and crew, um, our hearts grew a lot bigger during this whole production, especially since we mounted it uh, during the Syrian crisis, just around the time that we were considering taking action in Syria. How was the turnout for the show? It was very good. The, we went to our mayor, Roger C. Clare, who has been a big supporter of theater and culture in this community, and we said we would, would like to have a opening night that we can get sponsored by somebody here in the community so it can be free to the community so that money won't stand between the people of Bolingbroke, no matter what walk of life they're from, it won't stand between them and this awesome cultural experience written for them, uh, performed by their own people. We just really want to be able to reach the community in that way. A theater on the hill is a 501c3, but we haven't been able to uh, provide free entertainment like that in the future. And Mayor Claire captured the dream, and he said, I want to be that sponsor and support you. And he was our executive producer, along with Michelle Ho, 
Michael Gilmore and Rebecca Gilmore. They all financially made the show happen and come together. <laughs> and they, you, know. you, you put up a lot of money, and by virtue of that, me. But yeah, we had we had um, the mayor. We went to the mayor looking for his advice on various businesses that we could approach for small donations. You know, uh, just to get the thing off the ground because to do a brand new musical from scratch. We figured we'd probably need about 20 grand. The mayor sponsored the bulk of it uh, outside of Larissa and I, and uh, and the other people that Larissa mentioned. We we're lucky in as far as we have a lot of really technical, creative, artistic talent in our group. So we didn't have to pay a lot of money for things that were really worth a lot of money. That goes a really long way when you have people in your group who are established uh, film directors and photographers and artists and builders and writers and PR experts and all that kind of stuff that a lot of other companies have to pay a lot of money to get out. We handle it internally, and we're, we were able to take all of the money that we, um, that we raised and put it literally all of it into the production itself, which, which we feel showed. Craig, could you tell me about Theater on the Hill? We've established a really, um, I would say, stellar reputation among theater companies for, for the stuff that we do, um, and I'm, I'm really proud of it. Um, I've shown that, uh, you know, it, it, it's like Field of Dreams. You know, if you build it, they will come. What we've built is a little bit different than what typical theater companies, community theater companies especially do. I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, I've been involved with Theater on the Hill since about 2005. Some of the most important people in my life with the most rewarding relationships I've met doing local theater, and not for fame or for money, but for self-enrichment. And I encourage everyone wanting to meet people, become more a part of the community, create something really worthwhile to volunteer at their local theater company, just give it a try. This dream, Zenobio, wouldn't have come true for me if it hadn't been for the friendships and relationships and experiences I've had all these years. And the organization itself. Yeah, and the organization itself, for sure. Craig, is there any problems in directing a sort of sandal epic? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, the, the, the biggest challenge with directing this show was simply that it had never been done before. So it's always, you're, you're charting you're charting the course for future productions in the way that you do it. And, you know, if somebody's going to direct Oklahoma, for instance, you get a contract from the, from the publisher, and they tell you how you have to stage it. You actually have to use Agnes DeMille's choreography. It's in the contract, so, they're all, so it's always the same, so there's this quality control. With Zenobia, it was about taking a, a, a vast, Lots of people, you know, we had, we had people who were professional actors who have done this for a long time to people who've never done it before ever and kind of like uh, coaching them and, and getting them to where they need to be. As far as, far as uh, you know, creating a sword and sandal epic, um, we, we really didn't focus on that nearly as much as focus on the actual uh, technical aspects of actually being on stage and making it right and real and, 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 and making every scene make sense, and which is typical of, of most every stage production. You, 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 you want people 
to be up there giving their very best performances. Um, as a director, I don't want anybody on my stage who's going to embarrass themselves or not be uh, everything that they possibly can be. Um, it's my responsibility as a director to the actors to make sure that they give their very best, but to get them as good as they can be. And and then also to get the overall production itself uh, is, as clean and streamlined as it can be for the benefit of our paying audience. You know, uh, directing isn't, it's it's a million things and it's a single thing. It's but the single thing ultimately is is that you have to create an enduring product. And in, and in this particular instance, we wanted to create a product that we could have um, recorded so we could start getting it out there uh, and, and having other organizations produce it and get it published and hopefully take it as far as getting it into movie producers' hands because we think that's a, a good place for it as well. Our costumer, Julie Kinsey, was um, our gift from God. <laughs> the way she managed to make all these costumes happen. and Yes, and, and so, so many of them. But it was kind of funny sometimes seeing Craig as director getting everyone into the mindset they should be. I could see him talking to some of the younger men who were soldiers. You're a Roman soldier! You stand up straight! <laughs> yeah, I, had, I, I have a pretty extensive military background. So, you know, get, getting getting these little gangly 15- and 16-year-old teenagers from the suburbs to have kind of a, a military mindset was, was interesting. Uh, it, and they also had to wear togas, so they felt like they were wearing little dresses, but we had to make them, <laughs> we had to make them tough, you know. But once they got swords and spears in their hands and I oh, got that them did apart, it. Yeah, yeah, that really they did it. They loved swords. They loved that. And then we, we, we went out and we, this was a multimedia presentation. A lot of it we did. Uh, where we actually filmed and edited uh, scenes of, you know, warriors and different things, you know, battle-type scenes. That was the biggest challenge, was finding locations in the Chicago suburbs that we could shoot that would look like the angels. Oh, okay, okay, I got a question. There's a scene where it looks like you're in a marble pit. Do you know what I'm talking about? We are actually a limestone quarry, actually, (laughs) shot in in Plainfield. Uh, just uh, right next to Bolingbrook, we shot that. We got clearance from a local quarry who uh, do a lot of things like that for the community. Nothing like having people walk around in costumes and sandals and swords. That was the first. So it, it was interesting. We shot a lot of cantini, and we would have, it was funny, I think one day we had Japanese tourists following us around going, where's the show? Where's the show? We want to see the show. Are you still got a show today? <laughs> Well, they found an old construction site here in Bolingbrook that was just overgrown with with, uh, tall weeds and wildflowers that we did some of the scenes. It just worked out great. I mean, with a little bit of with a little bit of creativity and an open mind, you can you can make lots of different things work. I I think I think it really became real to everybody when we shot the publicity photo, Uh, the photo that we used on the on the cover of the DVD with Larissa and the two guys. I'm a professional photographer as well, and we shot that at 11 o'clock at night in my driveway in the heat of the summer. Ah. And all the neighbors <laughs> the neighbors were driving by and slowing down, and people are peeking out the windows going, what are those crazy neighbors doing at that house now? 
there's always something crazy going on at that house. Well, it, it, so, make, uh, it makes a nice conversation at the next block party, doesn't it? Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> so, um, so I did the photo, and the photo turned out great. And then I did the, you know, I did the graphic effects, and I put the poster together. And then everybody was like, "Wow." This is really happening, you know, and that's that's another thing, you know. Uh, you rehearse for months and months, and then the last month is when it really all comes together, and that's when they that's when they started going, oh, this is real, this is really happening, holy cow. Right. What you what what you said about uh, telling the uh, younger uh, males to straighten up because you're a Roman soldier, damn it. Um, the reminds me, I was reading something about the director of Aliens where he. He wanted his actors to act like they were actually in the Marine Corps, so he sent them to boot camp for two weeks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, and, you know, I was, I was on the Naval Special Forces myself, and uh, I oftentimes do uh, a modified uh, uh, Navy SEAL workout as a community outreach for guys who want to get into shape. So there's always that element of when I'm directing guys, I have, I have a pretty good understanding of guy language and guy stuff. So, um, you know. Getting getting them in that mindset it definitely would not be a Larissa thing. It definitely would be a Craig thing. He's leaving out the best part. The best part is when our wonderful choreographer, Deb, Deborah Hopkins, actually came in from out of town. But when she wasn't able to be there because she was actually out of state, Craig had to help polish up some of the, cho- uh, the choreography. So there he is, you know, and those of us not in the dance are very grateful for that. But uh, they're doing a minuet, a very proper minuet, the upper-class nobles, and there's Craig. Stop! My mother was a ballet instructor! You put your hands here, you put your feet here. Where do we put our hands? (laughs) (laughs) And the rest of it, all of us on the sides were just kind of laughing to ourselves as Craig went through the minuet looking like the best dancer you've ever seen, (laughs) showing them how to do it. (laughs) It had to be precision. I mean, you know, I mean... People go to see musicals only for a couple reasons. They go to see musicals for singing and music and dancing. You know, and if you have a story that's great, then that's, that's also an essential thing. But if the dancing is bad, well, you know. <laughs> so I kind of put a little bit of, uh, I put a little bit of boot camp into the dance instruction. Well, you, <laughs> and, uh, you were given what they wanted, it, darn it. <laughs> I mean, gee, geez. <laughs> but they ended up doing it right, you know, yeah. so ultimately it paid off and they were all happy. Because again, like I said earlier, it's all about making them look their very best on stage. I don't want to put anybody on stage and have them, you know, come across as, as not prepared, you know, so. Speaking of a Craig thing and speaking of a Larissa thing, okay, Larissa, who taught you your uh, your sword fighting moves? Well, uh, there was a bunch of us. Uh, we had some help from Scott Sawinski, who is a uh, equity actor and performer and has been on Broadway. He definitely contributed. Craig helped with a lot, or you choreographed a lot of the battle scenes with all the guys. Um, I choreographed a lot of my own choreography that I had uh, during my dream sequence. I'd I'd say the lion's share of the fight choreography was Craig. Craig choreographed that. It was a lot of fun. I have a fencing background, so I thoroughly enjoyed doing that. I think we only had one concussion in the whole cast, so uh, we we got away pretty easily as far as that goes. I think what amazed me most, though, is that we had, I mean, we'd be running these, especially 
um, I remember the dream sequence, be running it over and over and over and over and over and over again, you know, trying to get it faster and faster and faster and more, everyone's getting more comfort with it. And, you know, we'd be doing this at 10.30 at night after hours of rehearsals, and yet I was amazed. It's like none of the guys were complaining. They had smiles on their face for the first time the whole rehearsal. They yeah, <laughs> yeah. When, 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 when we first started this off, um, being a new musical, a lot of our early rehearsals were just musical rehearsals mm-hmm. where they had to learn all this brand-new music. And, you know, it's not like you can go back to the cast recording of Oklahoma and listen to it. They had to learn it from scratch with some pretty complicated harmonies and different mm-hmm. things like that. So rehearsals at first were work. And if you've ever done theater before, blocking rehearsals where you're doing the basic movements and traffic control of an entire cast, that's work. It's tedious. It's, it's, it, it takes a lot of time. But when these guys got to the point of actually doing the sword fighting and the warrior stuff, they were willing to stay till midnight, which was, <laughs> which was awesome, because they were having a blast at that point. Yeah, they were. Why do you think people should study the classics? I can answer that. <laughs> There's a lot of metaphors and allegories that are very literate in their nature, and metaphor and allegory is probably the most effective way to learn storytelling and to under and, and once you understand what it is, becomes a way that you can tell stories for the rest of your life using virtually any kind of scenario, as long as you understand what they are. And a lot of those classics always did that. I think that having a literary approach to writing and to staging plays and to um, to having that kind of understanding brings a depth to your, your, uh, everyone's living experience when you, when you understand those things. Footnote. Greg mentions metaphor. It comes from the Greek, meaning to carry over. Another meaning is a figure of speech that makes a relationship to an unrelated object. The most famous and the most appropriate to our subject comes from Shakespeare. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. Craig also mentions allegory. This is another literary device, a way to symbolize ideas and concepts. It has been widely used, for it is a powerful way to illustrate complex ideas in a digestible and tangible way to the reader or to the viewer. One classical play thought to be an allegory, and it is arguable, is Aristophanes' play, The Birds. It was written and performed not too long after the Sicilian expedition, name of the Athenian attempt to conquer Sicily in 415 to 413. It could have provided deep reflections to an Athenian audience that would have lost loved ones in this ill-fated military expedition. I can't help to think that the Hitchcock movie, also called The Birds, ponder that, is allegoric as well in telling a story about a family's fear of change, a Freudian take reflected in the hostility to a woman by one of the more peaceful species on Earth. Gene Roddenberry, creator and writer of Star Trek, used political and social allegory extensively to touch on society's ills. It was easier to talk of racism when it was on another planet 
than to reflect on the racism of the 1960s. I think a lot more people need to have a lot more literature in their lives for uh, for cultural enrichment and also understanding of, of, of different things that we come across in life. My thought is that classical history and culture is the basis of all Western civilization, particularly visual and performance art. And the sophistication of the Roman Empire was unmatched until the last 200 years. I think that the Roman um, era, probably more so than any other era, is what we as modern Westerners can relate to and find so many similarities between our own experiences, what we're going through now, and what the ancients experienced and their observations about life and the universe. When you watch television or see modern movies, can you see how the classics may influence what uh, is being performed? Completely. I think that goes back to Joseph Campbell as well. The three-act story structure goes back to classic mythology. And, of course, we all want to avoid the god and the machine, so to speak, <laughs> that the, uh, the, the Greco-Roman, you know? Yes. Yeah. Well, well please, please, define, please define that. I understand god and the machine is something where the gods come down and they make everything all right and thus the hero is saved. Is that what you're talking about? That's correct. And it's something I, I sometimes I criticize that in, in poorly written scripts is that, oh, well, the characters didn't find their own way out. Something came in and saved them at the last minute. I never look at it that way. I look at it like the writers ran out of ideas, <laughs> and they they need to they need to like tighten it up, tidy it up somehow at the very very end because they ran out of money or ran out of ideas or whatever, you know. But it's just like the, the same issue in theater that some of the Greco-Romans faced, except they had a term for it yeah. that works so well nowadays. God in the machine. It just it just happened that way. What movie were we watching where it was like? That happened a lot. Was that apocalypto? Where it's like uh, weird occurrences happened all the time to save the, the protagonist, and it didn't make any sense? I do not recall. It's been a while since I've seen that film. Anyway. Well, I, ha- I have an example. Is there, there's a, there was a movie out, and I went, and I went to get the book. It's not in the movie. They got rid of it. The, per- the, per- the director of the movie decided he didn't want to have a god in the machine. And, but in the book, the hero is, uh, meets this woman on a train and they get involved in an affair and it turns out she's, she has, she's blackmailing him and, uh, he meets her in a hotel and her, the bad guys are breaking through the door. They're just about to kill him. And what do you know? There's a guy in the hotel who decides to blow the hotel up. Yes, there you go. There you go. <laughs> and he survives. And the the director of the movie decided he was going to get rid of it. He made the hero figure out a way to get out of this mess. We're gonna be we're gonna be doing a review of uh, of uh, Monty Python skits, yeah. and that's gonna be in the. And yeah, that that always turns out to be a lot of fun. Uh, we did one last year that was really well received, and then this summer is West Side Story. Okay, well listen. Thank you very much. Thank you for the uh, DVD. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I had a Zenobia night. Definitely want to thank you for not only your patience and putting up with me, but taking all this time to edit it, um, which took a long time. Uh, but it, you know, just for giving us this opportunity to get the word out, um, it is actually my dream, Rob, that um, any success from Zenobia in the future will be able to partly be used to help 
Syrian refugees and what Zenobia's people are going through right now. Um, and it, whatever, whatever that's film, theater, whatever happens with it, thank you for being part of it. I appreciate it. And you two have a very nice Sunday. Oh, yes, yeah, thank you. But, oh, there is a couple ones. Uh, you were, I, I mean, just, well, I was uh, going to be able to say, uh, you know, I produced, Craig Engel directed, Michael Fudala music directed, uh, Catherine Schultz AD'd, about 70 people on stage and off, sacrificed their summer few brain cells <laughs> to give Zenobia life. Um, that it's inspirational, it's romantic, there's action, satire, intrigue, spirituality, spirituality and we all loved whacking each other with swords. Oh, <laughs> whacking each other with swords was the most fun part, but anyway. Yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> have a good day now. Uh, take care. Thanks so much, Rob. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Larissa Julianis and Craig Engel, a talented and generous couple from Bolingbrook, Illinois. If you want a copy of Zenobia, the musical, you can send a request to Theater on the Hill in Bolingbrook, and you can make arrangements that way. Uh, I'd like to point out that we were going to have... uh, Vicky Alvera Schechter in this uh, lineup. Uh, we're going to do it next time on Ancient Rome Refocused. She has written a book called Cleopatra's Moon. The story is about the daughter of Cleopatra, who, according to the history books, went on to live a uh, very interesting life. So she's coming up next time. This concludes episode 14. Season 3 of Ancient Rome Refocused. 